Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read from Romans 8, 31 to 39, just a couple of verses, verses 31 and 32. Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time to be in your presence Uh, We trust, though we do not see you, uh, that you are here and here by your Spirit. And now we ask you again that by your Spirit's wonderful and unique ministry, you would open our eyes so that we can see things, apprehend things, embrace things, believe things that would give us hope and encourage us deeply. Um, Do this work among us, Jesus, by your Spirit, we, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you caught this story. I know there are a couple of people uh, here that I suspect caught this story. Uh, On July 4th, the day that we were celebrating our nation's 236th birthday, an article appeared in the National Geographic News reporting the excitement of two groups of physicists, one in Switzerland and one in Texas, and they they were excited over the probable discovery of the Higgs boson. Aren't you excited? I mean, doesn't that just sort of amp you up and put you over the top? I mean, it does excite some people. And these physicists were very excited about this. The Higgs boson the so-called God particle is what these physicists, the ones in Switzerland and France, believe that they finally, after 40-plus years, have discovered. Peter Higgs and three of his associates theorized over 40 years ago that there must be some particle that would explain why galaxies and planets and even human beings have mass, have mass, and, and so the ability to exist. According to, and I'm way out of my depth here, okay, I'm way out of my depth, but I did read the article, and I found it fascinating at a number of levels. But apparently, according to standard models of physics, in order for these standard models of physics to work, that particle has to be there. And until just a few short days ago, that particle, the Higgs boson, had not been found. There it is. It just appeared right out of the blue. So the article then proceeds to discuss a whole lot of things related to this, the challenges that these these physicists have had in detecting the God particle and the challenges 
frankly, that remain in tracking it. I don't know how you track these things. I don't know how you find them in the first place. But they continue to face these problems and these, these difficulties. But they believe they found this thing, discovered this thing. And what is so interesting to me, as I read this article, is that the word God was capitalized. The word God was capitalized. And throughout the article, there were characteristics and features of personality that were attributed to this God particle, to this Higgs boson. And it reminded me of, of something that Francis Schaeffer observed years ago in his book, Genesis in Space and Time, and that he observed other places as well, or that he mentioned other places as well, found it interesting that modern science, which has no place, really no place, and, and precious little interest in affirming the existence of an infinite personal God, Nevertheless, this is what Schaefer observed. Nevertheless, when scientists refer to nature, they capitalize the word. And they attribute to nature characteristics and attributes of personality. Nature did this. Nature does that. Nature acts in this way. Nature works in this way. And the same kind of language in imagery you see if you read this article. You can find it online. National Geographic News, July 4th, 2012. And I guess what I find so interesting about that is that we seem compelled as human beings. We seem compelled to, at a number of levels to find some explanation for the way things are. We're compelled to do it. Some explanation that accounts for reality. And that is especially true when nature turns against us. And the questions then become, why did nature do that? Why did nature act in that way? Who is responsible? What is responsible at the end of the day? Is anyone responsible or is it just some thing that is responsible? But we seem compelled to want to find a final explanation for why things are the way they are. I, I have to tell you, I mean, I've, I've reflected on these few words in verse 31 over the course of this last week. And I have to tell you, there is something profoundly comforting about these five words. If God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's, it's a rhetorical question. It's a question Paul is anticipating the answer to when he asks it. To put it positively, what he's saying to these Roman Christians, although it's a, it's a rhetorical device that people will use, and he's using this device, 
what Paul is saying to these Roman Christians is, God is for you. And because God is for you, there isn't anything that can stand against him. Everything pales and falls and becomes nothing in the presence of God who is for you. Last week I suggested that we stop because that's, I believe, what Paul is encouraging us to do. Stop and take stock in the things that he has been saying up to this point. Reflect, meditate upon them. Meditate upon these notions. Contemplate these notions in verse 30, these, these words that sort of summarize everything that he's been working with and, and the whole development of the argument. He, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And then his question is, what are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? God is for you. Is for you. Now think about the contrast here. Think about the contrast. Some very well-intentioned physicists, somewhere near the border of Switzerland and France, hanging around a 17-mile-long tube, smashing particles into each other to try to account for the nature of reality. And I don't diminish or disparage that. We're created to do that sort of thing. It's actually the Christian position that accounts for why science makes sense and why human beings feel compelled to study the world in which they live. I don't disparage it. But compare that. Physicists hanging around a 17-mile-long tube, smashing atomic particles into each other, seeking to account for reality, things as they are. Contrast that with this statement that Paul is making. A first-century Jew who has encountered another first-century Jew and who has come to believe that that other first-century Jew is the long-awaited Messiah. And now he spends every waking moment, just as these physicists around that 17-mile-long tube, spend every waking moment trying to understand the nature of reality. Here is Paul spending every waking moment preaching, teaching, proclaiming, heralding, reasoning, arguing with people, summoning people to embrace the account of reality that he has come to understand by God's grace. God is for you. I, I love what Brent said. You think of the University of California. I was there in 1969. 1970. I went to the University of Michigan, which is where the Students for a Democratic Society was birthed. Tom Hayden. I know what Berkeley is. I know what Michigan is. God is for places like the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Michigan, and Tanzania, and villages engulfed, imprisoned in the darkness of Islam and of tribal religions. God is for us. Now, look, just take those, those three words actually four in the statement. The verb is, the intransitive verb is, God is. 
God is for them, for these Roman Christians. Who are we talking about when we talk about God? Think about some of the things that we've said. And by the way, I'm, I'm reading, I'm not going to refer to this um, by, by reading from it, but I want to hold this book up before you. Um, it is not the book that answers every question that anybody has ever asked, but it's a helpful and important book when it comes to understanding Christianity in the context of our current cultural moment and the unbelief and the rejection of Christianity that each of us encounters. It's Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. I've been reading it. I've been leading folks through it at the refuge. It's been a very good study, very helpful study. And one of the points that Tim makes over and over and over again is that everybody believes things. And the minute you believe something, you are necessarily, necessarily excluding other things from things about which you have conviction. Okay? Everybody is exclusivistic. Right? Because everybody believes things. We believe things about God. And when we affirm those things about God, it means that we are excluding other thoughts and opinions and beliefs about God. What do we believe about God? What are some of the things that we've been saying about God? Let's just remember this Excedrin headache, number 436 that I've referred to a number of times. The knowledge of God. What do we mean when we say God knows all things? You remember the four levels of knowledge that exist for God? God knows all particular things, individual things. God knows all particular things in all of their actual relationships to one another. I don't mean to be cerebral with you here. God knows all particular things. He knows all particular things in all of their actual relationships. He knows all particular things in all of their actual and potential relationships. And he knows other things which don't exist, but which could exist, or which exist in one form but could exist in another form in all of their potential relationships to things that do exist in all of their actual and potential relationships to one another. Nice! Look, when we say God knows a lot of stuff, When we say he is omniscient, that's what we're talking about. I played chess with William the other day. William invited me to play chess. William whooped me. All right? He's got 16 pieces. I've got 16 pieces. Pretty soon he's got 13 pieces, and I've got two. I'm looking at my 16 pieces, his 16 pieces. He clearly possesses knowledge that I don't possess. So after he whips me, I whip out my iPad and I Google chess strategies. Because there's stuff I don't know that I need to know if I don't run the risk again of being embarrassed by a 10-year-old whooping me in chess. 
A chessboard is such a perfect illustration on some small scale of what it is for God to know everything. He knows all 32 pieces on a 64 square chessboard in all of their actual and potential configurations. But he not only knows that, he knows everything else. But when we talk about God, we're not just talking about knowledge, whether actual or potential. When we talk about God, and I want you to think beyond just the level of knowledge with respect to this, when we talk about knowledge, listen, this is important. We're not just talking about the possession of data. We're talking about God who is wise. Who is wise. Who is inherently good and righteous and just and loving whose attributes are brought to bear in the exercise of wisdom. Someone has defined wisdom as the right use of knowledge. The difference between wisdom and knowledge, knowledge is possessing the information. Wisdom is the right use of it. Atomic power can be used well. It can be used poorly. Therapeutic drugs can be used well. They can be used poorly. What distinguishes someone who knows a lot from someone who is wise? The right use of what knowledge he or she possesses. And the scriptures tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? It means that in the use of the information, in the use of the knowledge, the reference point, the final touchstone for the use of that knowledge is God himself, his righteousness, his goodness, his justice, his love, his holiness, his perfection, his beauty. What is it that makes a wise person a wise person? Everything that I have, everything that I've been entrusted with, with respect to knowledge, has a connection to its source, God himself. And who in the universe is supremely concerned about God's glory? It is God himself. It is God himself. So that when God acts in wisdom, God himself, supremely concerned about his own righteousness, his own goodness, his own mercy, his own love, his own justice. When God acts in wisdom, he doesn't lose sight of himself. He acts with perfect wisdom. A wisdom that corresponds to the perfection of his attributes. God always does what serves his own glory. He knows everything, but he is wise. And you ask the question, given all of the possible permutations that there are, This is a great question for you to reflect upon. Given all of the possible permutations that there are for your life, given the fact that God knows everything that there is to know actually about your life and potentially about your life, 
What is it that accounts for the fact that your life is the way that it is? It is God who is limitless in knowledge and perfect in wisdom. God does in all the earth whatever pleases him. And he does in all the earth whatever pleases him based upon the possession of all knowledge and wisdom, the right application of that knowledge to your life. What do we mean when we say God is for you? Who are we talking about when we talk about God. That's who we're talking about. That's what we're saying. God is for you. Listen just to a couple of verses. Job 23 verses 13 and 14. He is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. He will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Job 23, verses 13 and 14. He completes what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Come on. Where do you find your comfort? Look, please don't hear me disparaging science. I love science. But do you find your comfort in a God particle? Or do you find your comfort in the infinite personal God who inhabits the universe in which you live, who is the source of the God particle and everything else, and who is just and loving and righteous and good and supremely wise? God is for you. And how about that little preposition for? Look, there are a ton of things that are against you. You realize that, don't you? There are a ton of things that are against you. You are surrounded by threats on every side. Every once in a while, we pray a prayer in this church, which includes the phrase, thanking God for having protected us from things seen and unseen. There are lots of things that threaten you, that are against you. The world is against you. It was against Jesus. And if you're a Christian this morning, the world is against you. The devil is against you. He's really there. He's not an impersonal evil force. He is a personal evil force with designs and intentions. Is he restrained? Yes, he is. Severely and dramatically. Is he around? Yes, he is taking aim at God's people and God's purposes. The devil is against you. The flesh is against you. That triad, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are opposed to you, all three of them. Your flesh is against you. Paul talks about it in Galatians 5. The spirit and the flesh war against each other. See, here's what has happened if you're a Christian. You have experienced a resurrection. You have experienced a resurrection. You have experienced what the Bible calls the new birth, a regeneration, 
a rebirth. But you are like Lazarus, who himself experienced a resurrection. However, when he came out of the grave, he was still wrapped up in the grave cloths. And he had to be set free from the grave cloths. That's a great picture of what's going on in your life. You've experienced a resurrection, but you're still wrapped up in a whole bunch of stuff that is deplorable. And as I said last week, when we run these ads, it's stuck. Remember the ads? Do you ever get tired of you? You've experienced a new birth, but you're still wrapped up in you. And what you need to be delivered from more than anything else is you. There are things that are against you, seen and unseen. I mentioned the brother of a good friend who at Christmas time, 2011, was the picture of health. And now, today, seven months later, is dying of cancer. He had no earthly idea. There are things that are against you. But who is for you? God is for you. There's this, this is a silly illustration, I suppose. But there's this great scene in the first Indiana Jones film where Indy is on the run. You remember this? And he's in some North African town someplace and he's running from the bad guys and he runs into the square, into this, you know, the town square and the crowd parts and there's this, I guess he's a ninja. I don't know what he is, but he's this big overbearing dude who's whipping these swords around like nobody's business. And you think... Short movie. Indy's going to meet his end. He's toast. I mean, this dude is big and scary and clearly good with swords. And what does Indy do? I mean, it's silly, right? But what looks so imposing and so intimidating and so threatening can't stand against a bullet. You remember the story from a couple of weeks ago that I told the sermon that I listened to, the Joe Novenson sermon. Joe makes this observation, Revelation 20, the binding of Satan. Here's this big scary beast, Satan, who's wreaking havoc in the whole world, and God needs to deal with Satan. And he sends an angel to do it. He didn't even do it himself. He sends a created being, commissions a created being to deal with the light work of binding Satan. It's in Revelation 20, the first couple of verses. You can see it. You can read it for yourself. An angel came down from heaven and bound this. God doesn't even bother with this big, fearsome, threatening serpent. Mark chapter 5 is the longest narrative in the scriptures of a deliverance from demonic possession. And how does Jesus deal with legion? How does Jesus deal with legion? Does he call for a legion of angels? Does he summon the whole of the company of heaven to deal with legion, to free him from this bondage? With a word. Legion. Is set free. 
come out of him. And the demons flee. What is opposed to you? What is against you? Are you kidding? They are no match for God who is for you. He is for you. And then that last word, he is for you. I need 60 more minutes. John 17. Listen to these words. Beautiful, precious words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Do you hear that? This is your homework assignment for the week. Reflect on those two verses. Hear what Jesus is saying. The Father has given the Son all authority over all flesh to the end that all of those whom the Father has given to the Son, the Son, through His work on the cross, may actually fully, completely redeem. The Father and the Son and then the Spirit are all in this together. It is the triune God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are for you. For you. We're coming to the table now. And in coming to the table, we're being encouraged to think about these things. That the Father has loved you, known you, given you to Jesus, entrusted you to Jesus from before the foundation of the world. And the Father, having given you to Jesus, has given the Son, Jesus, all authority necessary to secure for you your final salvation. And now it is the Spirit of the Father and the Son, whose singular work it is, to take all of the blessings of that salvation and gradually, lovingly, patiently, relentlessly press those blessings deep into the fabric of your soul. This table is a place for us to be reminded of the great and glorious and incredible work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God, who is for you. Let's pray together and prepare to come to this table. Lord Jesus, I trust that by your grace we've been somehow nourished here. And would you, by the same Spirit who nourishes us by the word, would you now come to this table and nourish us yet again? Press the reality deep into our hearts that you, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, are for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.